there are certain things I avoid. For example, politics. Mm -hmm. I try to avoid politics, not from the perspective I don't have a point of view, but that's not necessarily what my audience is trying to understand about me. And also, I'm representing the university. So if I if I go down that route, I get into I would have the provost call <laughs> right away. Going, Mike. Uh, <laughs> By the way. Yeah. So, uh, so and, who was so. your favorite politician then? I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, good trap. I didn't call you that. <laughs> sorry for saying sorry. Media presents the Per Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery, with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kerpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hi, this is Dr. Susan Little. And Dr. Yola Kerpenstein. We did really good that time. I know. We have a history of um, looking at each other and not knowing who goes first. So yeah. our podcasts have a lot of stalled starts. Sure. Mm -hmm. And once um, a guest even like looked at the two of us and said, okay, well, I'll start the podcast. <laughs> yes. So This is the Per Podcast, by the way. It is. A famous cat podcast. And we have a famous star today. We do. A first of It's first. It's a first. A first. Probably a first of many. Yes. We'll see. We make some people very jealous with this. We did. We'll talk about that later. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So we should introduce our guest. Who do we have? Hi, I'm Michael Larimore, and Dean of the School of Veterinary Medicine at UC Davis, and I'm pleased to be here and talk with you today. Yay! We are so excited. I know. We are excited. So this is one of my favorite social deans. Yes. Although Carolyn Henry, probably Dean Henry, probably will say that is what you say to me all the time too. <laughs> but you know, <laughs> well, as a Missouri grad, I endorse that comment. Uh, very good. Well, well played. Yeah, well played. yeah that's very good. That's mm -hmm. very good. So well played. Uh, yeah, there's a couple of deans that are very active on social media, mm -hmm. and you're one of them. And uh, I think that uh, very much on LinkedIn, yeah, I see you, and uh, Twitter. But also mm -hmm. Twitter, Twitter and other things. So it, it it's really different for me because, and I don't want to dive immediately into this topic, although oh, it's no, a topic of a my topic. heart. Um, but uh, I remember my deans in the good old times, mm -hmm. and they would never do that. Mm -hmm. Um, so my first question to you is, do you have any restrictions? Oh, Does yes. anybody tell you you're not allowed to say this? And you know, that's, that's a great question. I, uh, you know, just by sort of historically, you know, people often ask, well, how did you get into doing Early on, I think what, what I viewed, and it was Twitter initially, um, but what social media was allowing me to do is to communicate uh, directly to people I may not have been able to reach. And, um, and I started out by myself uh, because I didn't have too much support. So I'm an early adopter, a very early adopter. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my um, posts were by trial and error. Mm -hmm. Now later I learned the, there's a lot of science behind this. There's a lot of uh, marketing behind it. There's a lot of uh, social science behind this. And so now I actually give uh, some talks to academics uh, and request uh, to what do you do for social media? What is, you know, at, you know, for helping them express themselves through social media? That is great. Yeah. Because mm. I sense that there is like reluctance and fear of the unknown and what's right and what's not right and is it okay? Yeah. Did you have those all, worries? All of the above. Yeah. And, and a lot of it was because of some uh, misconceptions. Yeah. I think the misconception sometimes is that people think, well, I'm going to be attacked through social media, or I'm going to say the wrong thing. 
And so I was very careful to really think about what the goals were behind the platform. And then later, what the platform is designed to do. You know, so Instagram is different from Twitter. You know, Facebook is different from LinkedIn. And, and then thinking about how could I adapt my message for uh, promoting what I wanted out of that. And so most of the time I'm thinking in the lens of my job, you know, um, you know, trying to understand, well, what is it I'm trying to project? Well, now as a dean, it's obviously, if it's a student population, you're trying to talk about things that are relevant to students and, and be empathetic uh, towards students. So wellness, for example, is a, is a big one. And so I'll post about my personal life and wellness and uh, a few other people do that. And part of it is to open up the, the book and say, this is who I am. Yeah. And I have found that connection with students. Um, students will come up to me and just be, they'll say, oh, it's so great that you talked about your travel or you know, this weekend you, you know, took the time out to spend time with your family. And so you're demonstrating through social media and you're opening yourself up through that, yeah. but that's a target audience that you're trying to understand and communicate with. And I think it's, it's been a valuable tool. And do you have a whole social media team behind you or is it no. one person? <laughs> I, uh, people have ask me that often, no, it's just me. Wow. And, and I think it's important because you have to have, I know you guys feel this way as well, but there is your own voice. Mm -hmm. And not that I don't trust other people to, and I have professional communicators that do through UC Davis, the normal channels, the and they're through the university, but and they're professionals and they do a very good job, but they don't have my voice. And so, for example, I write my own dean's perspective mm -hmm. on a monthly basis, mostly internally, but I sometimes will blog that out. And we did that to again, you you want to express an authentic voice, and um, if you're not authentic and you're not telling the truth. Uh, people pick up on that and they won't follow yeah. you uh, and you know that because you're very active on the they same don't way. quickly if, if it's it, not it, you it makes a lot of sense but I always wonder that so you you post something and when when I post things I always think or at least my partner always tells me okay think about what you post before you post it and I'm not that good in that because I'm more you know an expressionist mm -hmm. and so I, mm -hmm. I like to say things and then I think oh maybe I shouldn't have said that um, in your case, you probably have the provost on the on mm. the on the other end of the phone, or is that uh, he thinks okay, Dean Gilmore is doing such a good job. Uh, well, not, you know, I have to say I, I'm a little bit cautious to say this, but I've never had that happen, mm. and I think it's because I I know the boundaries. Mm. I know there are certain um, things I avoid. For example, politics. Mm -hmm. I try to avoid politics, not from the perspective I don't have a point of view. But that's not necessarily what my audience is trying to understand about me. And also I'm representing the university. So if I if I go down that route, I get into I would have the provost call me <laughs> right away going, Mike. Uh, By the way. Yeah. So, uh, so and, who was so, your favorite politician then? I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, good trap. I didn't call you that. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. I think you went about it in a very um, thoughtful way mm -hmm. because I think where people get burned is they don't do that thought process, yeah. right? And they're yeah. not kind of figuring out who am I, who's my audience, what's my message, and they just kind of dive in, right? right? right. And it's not a benign uh, pool, social media. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, not. it's and, not. And all of us have experienced, occasionally when you do get attacked, you know, there'll be somebody, you know, that you, you put out a point of view about research or something, mm -hmm. and then it'll be somebody, a, 
uh, attack you because they just don't want they don't like that area or you know if you animal agriculture is, is mm-hmm. uh, can be uh, that way so you know I'm, I'm careful not to try to, to to get into these extremes too much or not go down the rabbit hole of answering it um, and moving on um, but always keeping in mind the mission you know the mission what your goals are and who you're actually trying to communicate with and obviously the format yeah. You know, Instagram is visual, yeah. and yes. and I'm not as good as that as I could be because I don't have a very good camera. To be honest with you, I just have my 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 iPhone. But I'm I my dream is to is to actually get a better camera mm-hmm. to, because I looked at some people's Instagram accounts and they're stunning. Yeah. You know, and you get look at these. Oh my God, I could. But I'm too busy to do that. So, um, but but uh, LinkedIn. You know, I consider that my professional colleague. Yeah. So, you know, I know you're going to read it and you're going to read it. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking, what would my professional colleagues mm-hmm. um, think? And so it's a little bit more academic, obviously. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more peer-reviewed. And then my sources, I really am careful. You know, I, I'm, because I'm a scientist, I, I knew that there's a big difference between, you know, proceedings of the National Academy of Science and, you know, <laughs> my favorite journal that just came out last week, mm-hmm. you know, a predatory journal. So I'm very careful about referencing who I reference. Yeah. If I pick up a, a an article from Science Magazine, it could be about cats, or you know, it could be about anything. I you know, like today it was or yesterday it was about dogs with, you know, that they can sense heat, you know, and I thought yeah. that was fascinating. Yeah. But it was published in referenced in Science. Yeah. yeah. So I felt, oh, this is a trusted source. So anybody that would look at that would would. You know, it's not a, a crazy yeah. out there, and, and so the the source of information is important. You, you've done and it very scientifically. No, it, it, like it's really it's really good because you've got a scientist I, mind. Yeah. Because when you post something, I immediately think, okay, he knows what he's posting, yeah. so it's easy for me also to repost things mm-hmm. that you yeah. do. Yeah. And I notice also you do the same with me. That, yeah. That if yeah. if if I read the science journal earlier than you do, I am just like one millisecond <laughs> earlier. But I think we're then, we're doing the same thing. Yes. So if you post something yeah. on cats yeah. I'm going wow she's an expert I'm gonna to listen to that and I mm-hmm. and I follow that oh, that's great. Susan Ettinger on cancer you know yeah, I follow yeah. her stuff mm-hmm. and you're on nutrition and yeah. all of the hills does you know so I'm actually you know because I know where you guys are based in mm-hmm. and you're based in science and evidence-based medicine it's easier for me to then repost you guys because it's the same mm-hmm. so it kind of feeds off of each other and it's really important because there's so much other stuff yeah. out there that is just, well, not very... Not very good. Yeah, not very good. <laughs> we'll just say not very good. And our clients, to our students, to our constituents, you know, they're looking yeah. for us to give yeah. them... Be truth. the leader. Yeah. So how, how do other deans feel about it or other academics? What, well, what have, kind of like feeling do you get when you talk about this? Well, I have some that are um, in the same league. They're, they're very similar to me. Um, I don't know whether I can say other deans. Yes, yeah, yeah, so, oh, sure. because we're, we'll go there very soon. To, to, <laughs> to Rustin Moore at Ohio State. We, I call it the we were gonna social go to dean Moore. competition. <laughs> so <laughs> Rustin is, uh, and you can tell through his social media channels, is um, has a point of view, and he's trying to promote his own. Um, uh, and he, we're often parallel, uh, yeah. you know, like wellness, for example, uh, student issues, or it might be an issue related to the profession that's very common. So. I follow him, and we have similar. We we haven't really sat down and discussed our whole philosophy, but I can tell that he's trying to uh, be out there and trying to, 
say the message and connect with audiences we normally would have con not connected with. Then that ranges, and then the other extreme is those that never even look at Twitter or <laughs> never even look at social media and turn it over to somebody else at their university. And I understand that, I'm not criticizing that. It's just that in today's world, our students, you know, as you look at the next generation, are all on social media and they're, they're, they're very sophisticated. If we don't understand it, you know, we're kind of not communicating with them. You're not and, connecting in their world. Yeah. So, you know, obviously there's people that, that respond that I never would have met, like a, in the Central Valley of California, a veterinarian said, our old clinic follows you on social media and we, we talk about it. And I'm going, oh, that's scary. <laughs> but, but it also said, I have a responsibility. Yes. So, and I'm sure you feel the same way. You yes. have a responsibility that when you put something out there, let's say it is a scientific article, or it's about a disease of cats or it's something, you're, you're thinking, who out there is going to be listening? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the three, the three deans that I always talk about have a healthy competition between each other. Uh, I know Russell really well. I know Dean Henry really well. And you're, and you're fueling that fire. <laughs> I am. I am. No. So and I'm, I'm very proud of that, doing that. Yeah. But I think you also reach different audiences, and that's why I think it's so right. important. Right. So, and, and being open about your personal life, the things that you do, also gives people visibility on what you do as a dean. Because for me, when I was a student, the dean was somewhere in the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. I rarely saw that person. It descended sometimes to speak to the populace and then it went back to the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. Now you can see that the dean is just a normal person mm -hmm. that is head of a very, very large organization with all the things that are happening. Uh, so my next question really is, how do you become a dean of one of the most prestigious veterinary colleges? Mm. Although Rustin will obviously <laughs> complain about what I'm saying right now. And he, ha he told me to remind you that everything starts at The Ohio State University? <laughs> well, it's good timing that you asked that question because this week we were rated number one in the world by QS no World kidding. Ranking. Oh, it's a bunch of good timing. Yes. But, um, okay, Rustin. Going, going back to that other uh, thing that you mentioned is, is that why is it important is because I'm a first-generation college student. Mm. You know, yeah. I didn't become a dean. Uh, I was a poor kid that had an alcoholic father and, uh, you know, my vision of the world was... I don't want to work in a factory, mm. you know? And so I came from very humble backgrounds. And so, and I almost died when I was three from encephalitis. Mm. So my aunts would come up to me and, and say, oh, it's so great. You know, when you were in the hospital almost dying, I took care of your mother who was having a nervous breakdown. And so I grew up thinking I had a second chance. Mm. And I said, I, I can't screw it up. And when a, when a kid is told that, when they're three and beyond, course I don't remember any of this I had to learn to walk all over again talk all over again you you become really appreciative that this is really an important part of your existence so fast forward to you know first generation college student is that you have an obligation your obligation is to is to you owe it to all those people who helped you get to wherever you were at and so when I'm talking to students I want to tell that story I want to make sure that they understand that I'm not that far away from where you were at. It's time, yeah, wise, but I was there. I was scared to death of going to college, let alone even get into veterinary school. And, you know, I participate in these things because I want them to understand that we all have 
difficulty in life. Mm-hmm. And it's a it's those people that help you. It's your you know your social connections, your everything else. And so by telling this story, you're actually helping connect with them. And then the other part of the equation is I feel an obligation to to help them. You know, I that's you know I love anything we can do for students, kind of thing. So and that's the most gratifying thing about my social media channels is when I have a student respond. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you know. I don't mind when you respond. That's great. But <laughs> I just you say, guys, okay, this is it. Yeah. But if a student <laughs> yeah, responds, yeah. I'm going, oh, this is so cool, you know. And uh, then, you know, if I'm following them, and I heard a comment, a really compliment the other day. One of the students said, oh, it's so great that the dean takes his time out to even follow me on, yeah. you know, whatever. So I'm following them, and they'll get married or something, or they'll post something. I'll go, oh, congratulations, and you do the same thing. Mm. And, you know, when you connect to people... Uh, like that and then when you see them in person they're smiling initially you have a connection there and um, you know you so you're doing it to be a role model mm. but you're also doing it because it's part of your um, just your DNA it's part of being human mm-hmm. yeah exactly Isn't it? exactly we all have our stories and so what what is your background then because you didn't go from student to Dean I hope <laughs> no no I, uh, I, I you know the my uh, background is that when I was in high school, I don't know how, I think I was roaming around the fields too much looking at bugs and I was really fascinated by life and the, you know, I spent a lot of time outdoors. And I, I announced that I was gonna be a veterinarian when I was 15, I have no idea, probably watching too many, and I'm gonna date myself. James Harriet? Mutual of Omaha's <gasps> Wild Mutual Kingdom. Mutual of Omaha. And reading James Harriet. Uh, later, yes. but I announced I was going to be one of the veterinarians. Big questions, Mark. Yeah. Well, so, that, so I went up to my high school counselor and I said, "I want to do this," and he said, "Get another plan." <laughs> he said, "You're not even going to go to the the university. I always lived in Missouri. Uh, you're not even going to get in there because only twenty percent of our high school students even go to college, let alone, and they most go to community college. So right away, it was a bad plan for him. And I said, and I must have been persistent because I kept bugging people. Finally, the principal, and his name was Richard Franklin, so you know if I remembered his name, mm. that he meant something. Mm-hmm. He called, he took the time out, not telling me what he's gonna do. He called the local veterinarian and said, can you help this kid out? We don't know what to do with him. He's, you know, he won't go to this vocational technical school, but we'd like him uh, to help him, but he keeps talking about these veterinary medicine. We have no idea what to do with him. And he says, well, who is the kid? He named my name. And he goes, oh, that kid's been here three times for a job. <laughs> and I keep rejecting him because I kept volunteering to be a kennel boy because he was the only veterinarian in my that I could walk to because I didn't have a car. Mm. And um, But I turned 16, and he gave me a job as the super-duper pooper scooper. Wow. <laughs> and I thought, wow, this wow. is great. I got it. I was so thrilled to be working for a veterinarian. And, but he took me under his wing, and I found out later that he thought I was an, what, quote, at-risk kid because he knew my background. He yeah. knew the neighborhood. He knew that. Yeah. And so he, you know, he was a hard-nosed guy. Yeah. And he said, you know, he would say things like, uh, well, Laramore, if you go on a coffee break, I, I, I don't want to send you on a coffee break. I'll have to retrain you when you come back, you know. <laughs> so he was, he was a tough guy. Mm-hmm. But uh, he took me under his wings, and I started to work as a kennel boy and then other jobs later and learning about veterinary practice. And... Um, he later became allergic to animals. So he's allergic to animals, but it came so severe. And this is where I go back to uh, sort of a philosophy. He went on to the University of Missouri as a graduate student. 
and could, to get his PhD in microbiology. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, when I got in as a graduate, undergraduate student, uh, he offered me a job in his lab to do um, glassware watching in his mm-hmm. lab. And so, you know, you think about the parallelism between how lucky was I to be at the right place at the right time, gave me a job in a lab, and then as a, you know, developing, uh, later got into vet school, uh, Phi Zeta, a little research project. That's how I got my exposure to research, is through his opportunity that he gave me, both as a kennel boy, but later as a, you know, in the research lab at Missouri, where we had a little presentation. And I went into practice two years, um, thinking I wanted to be James Harriet. <laughs> Don't we all? And mm-hmm. I really loved practice. It was dairy mixed animal practice. But about um, a year into the practice, my son was born. And you know, nobody can tell you exactly how you're going to respond when you know that happened—a life event. And you know, it was 1983, 84, and I thought, you know. You know, maybe I want to buy into practice, and that was not a good time because of the recession, et cetera. Mm, So instead of doing that, I looked at, you know, well, what am I interested in? And I was still interested in, like, the whole animal. So I thought internal medicine or pathology, so I applied at a variety of places. And I was really lucky I got into Colorado State. But back then, I didn't even visit. I had never visited the campus. It was all through ads and Javelin. You didn't know it was close to the mountains. Didn't, that was on my mind. <laughs> and I remember um, being on the back porch of my house when uh, a professor, uh, Dan Gould at Colorado State, called me and said, you know, we saw you had this little research project at Missouri, and that put me in a different pool because it just came out as publication. So that got me into graduate school, that one little tiny oh, research funny. project. So it pushed me ahead a little bit. So I got in Colorado State. I'm at Colorado State studying obscure viruses, um, uh, ovine progressive pneumonia, which you guys know about, but most of the world did not at mm-hmm. that time. Hey, I studied caprine arthritis encephalitis virus as go. a student, so I'm with you. Yeah, and I was, <laughs> I was studying that, and um, the um, uh, this was 1984. My advisor comes in, James D. Martinez at Colorado State, and gives us a picture of a electron micrograph, actually of a virus particle. And he said, what is this? Well, we knew by the shape of it. Ah, that's a lentivirus. It's a member of the retroviruses. That's the ovine progressive pneumonia virus that we're studying in the lab. He said, no, that's from an AIDS patient in San Francisco. That was the moment that they connected the AIDS to this family of viruses. Well, the world changed overnight. No longer were they obscure. Mm-hmm. Now, now we started getting invitations to go to the National Cancer Institute to talk about what we knew in animal viruses. So all of a sudden the whole world changed for me and I got a job eventually at the Centers for Disease Control. Again, right place, right time. And I'm thinking I have this uh, guardian angel sitting over me that you know, you almost died when you were three and I'm gonna put you into this position. You yes. better take advantage of it. So now I'm at the CDC study in viruses and HDLV1, which was related to bovine leukemia virus, was an opportunity that nobody else was studying at the time. Anyway, got into that virus and the rest is like, you know, recruited back to Ohio State and uh, had a great career. That um, is a great story. Yeah, never yeah. would I dream that a kid like, from Missouri 
would eventually get into National Academy of Medicine. I medicine. love that. And so, you were a lentivirus person. I know even that better. is amazing. Yeah. So well, Russell also you. needed to to remind you that feline leukemia virus thing oh. was all behind. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Richard Olson, who yeah. by the oh, way, oh yes, of course, he recruited me to really? OSU really? from the CDC in Atlanta, wow. and I got a chance to work for Fred Murphy, who was a veterinarian, who was a division director that did the first pathogenesis for rabies virus. You, um, so you'll never lucky. forget the lentivirus thing, and no. that, right? No. Like lots of history making. Yeah. Now I get to work with Niels Peterson. Oh. Yes. So we will talk about yeah. that in our next episode oh, because no. we're already here. Really? Yeah. So our Great. episodes are 25 minutes. Yeah. yeah. So we'll do two. We'll be ne- uh, back next week. So we're going to end on lentiviruses? I guess We so. just got to the part I really like. I know. This is an I infectious know. subject. I know. I know. <laughs> I know. It is. It's, it's going viral too. And here so. come the puns. Uh, and that's it. So uh, <laughs> would you like to say something about our podcast? <laughs> so so um, for those of you who are listening, <laughs> Yola is trying to desperately communicate to me that I'm supposed to say... Um, Please find us on your favorite uh, podcast app. Um, please give us a, a rating, hopefully a good one. You know, we're just ask, asking. And uh, uh, subscribe. And uh, our website is perpodcast.net. And you'll find all of our episodes there. You can even listen live there should you should you wish. So we thank Dean Lairmore for a wonderful first part. And, uh, you know, let's uh, wait until next week. It was my pleasure. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs, and you can follow her on social media with the handle at Cat Pet Susan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at GVE. TSX. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against Struvites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove screwbite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast. 